One of the themes of this podcast is how we as actors are constantly changing, adjusting, tweaking our careers as we transition from stage or screen or commercials or voiceover. But that same kind of transition happens for those behind the table as well. My guest today is Patrick Millsaps, who has had the unique journey of being an attorney turned political advisor and pundit to then becoming a talent manager and ultimately movie producer and studio head, taking the skills from one job into the next. People asked me how I made the transition to show business, and I was like, what transition? As a producer, I was always asking for money. Managing talent, I was always taking care of grown-ups as if they were children. I don't mean that for all actors, but I certainly mean that for all politicians. Hello and welcome to Why I'll Never Make It, or Win Me for short, one of Feedspot's top 25 theater podcasts. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, an actor and singer for almost 30 years, and each week I talk with fellow actors and creatives as we explore the challenges we face trying to make it in this business. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com. There, I would love for you to sign up for the monthly newsletter where you'll get podcast updates, bonus content, and info on other artist resources. Learn all about that and more at whyillnevermakeit.com or click on the link in the show notes. Patrick Millsaps and I have known each other since college, where we both attended Samford University. He took some acting classes with me, I took some communication classes with him, but even though we were on slightly different academic paths, they crossed frequently and we became friends throughout our time in college. But after graduation, Patrick went back to his home state of Georgia and had his own small-town law firm for about 12 years. Eventually, though, he was asked to volunteer to be part of a 2012 presidential campaign. At the time, he thought this would be a great opportunity that would look good on his LinkedIn resume. But what he thought would be a couple of weeks as general counsel turned into a full-time position as chief of staff. But he eventually left that position just a couple of months before the whole campaign folded in on itself. In fact, Patrick left the political theater altogether for the world of movies and entertainment. In 2015, Patrick started Londonderry Entertainment, a talent management and production company. And then in 2019, he founded Kane Studio, which will focus on film and television production. Now, you can check the show notes for links to some of the topics and people we'll be talking about today, and there's even a link to the YouTube episode if you would care to watch this insightful interview instead. Because Patrick's story is not only one of diverse experiences and opportunities, but it's also one of persistence and a constant drive to learn and improve himself. He was often a fish out of water, but that didn't stop him from constantly diving headfirst into the deep end. Well, you have certainly had a long political legal career before entering the entertainment industry. And certainly, you know, through talent representation, management, film production, that's been a pretty big leap to go from one to the other. So what made you think you could make such a pivot in your professional career? And, and then what steps did you take to actually make it happen? You make it sound so purposeful. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 
<laughs> like I had this life plan where I was going to start being a lot, you know, no, I practiced law until full time until about 2012. I had this six month kind of diversion where I was playing politics at the highest possible level, which was kind of like being named the captain of the Titanic after it hit the iceberg. And then becoming a political pundit, no less, for a year after that, people asked me how I made the transition from that to show business. And I was like, what transition? Um, in, in fact, what I'm doing is more honest than what I did do because it says BS on the door, right? We, we say based on the true story. I mean, if you go into a movie, you're not expecting, unless it's a documentary, you're not really expecting the full truth. So, I mean, but it's the same skill set. It's the same pecking order. I mean, you know, uh, as a producer, I was always asking for money, uh, at managing talent. I was always um, taking care of grownups as if they were children. I don't mean that for all actors, but I certainly mean that for all politicians. But I really did enjoy, well, screw all that. I was making a lot of money in it. I mean, let, let me just, I went from billing out by the hour to, you know, making a percentage of whatever somebody else made. And then I met, and then I produced a movie and that did real well. And it just seemed what I was doing was more fulfilling to me than practicing law or doing politics, because I really enjoyed storytelling. I can tell your audience that you and I were in the same acting class. You were in it as a as a career. I was in it because it was a requirement. And so, <laughs> right, right. It was one of your you know, electives you, know, you had you to carry me through it because <laughs> I was like just angry every day I had to be there. Um, but so I, I'm, you know, but once somebody told me I once I had a creative soul. So I guess that's what tapped into it. Well, uh, I mean, so I mean, I just, there is a bit of theatricality in both fields, regardless. Oh, no yeah. question. No yeah. question. But Oddly enough, I discovered I really liked editing because when you, as a lawyer, you know, you work for three years to build up the story that you have to tell a jury, right? And 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 you only get one shot at it, right? And you've got to take three years of information, you've got to cut it down to two weeks max on to tell a jury a story, and you've got to make it interesting to them to they so they don't fall asleep. But as a lawyer, you only get to tell that story once, right? And, and then you spend the next month going, man, I should have done it this way or that way. Um, so when I got into a into a, a medium that you actually could change the way and order and things that you could tell the, the same story or make it better, I, I, I think that really kind of I enjoyed that part of it. Um, and and but, unlike in the legal profession, you could kind of leave the truth for a bit to tell that story or highlight it in a certain way and then come back to whatever the story really or is. Or not tell the truth at all. Right. <laughs> or just make fiction. it all up. It's called, just make the whole thing up and it's called fiction and you're not going to go to jail for doing that. So uh -huh. um, through politics, so I did politics, I did news and then got to the entertainment one and I really enjoyed the entertainment one. And then it just cut, it, it, it took me a couple of years to figure out um, where I, where I fit and where my skill set felt best and where I felt like I was doing fulfilling work. Well, I want to zero in on your time in talent management for a bit. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what exactly were you looking for in the artists that you might represent? I, I, again, you, you, you put a lot of uh, purpose and drive into the way that I planned that. Mm -hmm. um, actually, there was an actress who um, went on Pierce Morgan, I think, and she was an actress uh, that had not been heard from for about 20 years. And she was, I, I really do think she was one of the first people that 
got canceled um, because she said something that wasn't, a, you know, a Hollywood actor wasn't supposed to say these things. And so I reached out to her just because I thought she had done such a good job. And, I, and I'm, I'm one of these people that, you know, 90% of my friends disagree with me. I just thought she did a good job as, as holding her own against Pierce Morgan and making her points. I ended up meeting with her. And after a couple of meetings, she asked me to go to a pitch meeting with her for a TV show. And, and Patrick, I didn't know what a pitch meeting was. I didn't know the importance of having a very famous showrunner attached to it. I, I didn't know any of this. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a script. It was a treatment, again, using words that I did not know what at the time. And they had blown a couple of pitches. And she asked me to come out to California just to see if I could help with a pitch. Because, I mean, you know, what's lawyering and politics, that's all about being persuasive. Right. And I sat in that room with these nine people. You have producers and agents and all this. And, and I said, at the end of it, I was like, are y'all trying to sell something? because that ain't going to do it. Um, and the showrunner, who is uh, very well established, I'm not going to say his name, but we've all seen his shows, said, why don't you come with us tomorrow? And I'm like, okay. So the next thing I know, we're in, the, we're, we're in this con in Showtime's conference room, and, and the, you know, there's way too many of us, and uh, an executive comes in who ends up being a very, becoming a very good friend of mine. He's one of four execs at Showtime that can green light a show on his own authority. Hmm. Um, we go through, um, he said something political, and you know me, I'm, I don't have a filter. And I said, that. so in my biggest Forrest Gump, um, sounding uh, accent. Of course, most of your audience right now says you already sound like Forrest Gump. I just said, well, Randy, you're just full of horse shit. And he started laughing his butt off and everybody else was like, <gasps> and so we get through the pitch and, and, and Randy asks me to lunch and nobody else. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you and, go. Yeah. And so for about two hours, I mean, I didn't know what the, the significance of going to this lunch guy this was, but I started asking him questions, starting with that pitch we did. That sucked pretty bad, right? And he was like, yes. And, you know, we, we, we became friends. Um, but after that meeting, this actress called me and said, will you be my manager? And I literally had to Google up, Google what manager was. And um, I set... My, I said, look, I'm giving myself 12 months um, to get you, and, and, and I'm going to do three things. I'm going to get you paid for your opinion, which I just learned through politics you can do. I'm going to get you a book deal, and I'll get you back in the movie business, not knowing how I was going to do any of those three things. But I figured if it, it, with 12 months, I could do it. And, yeah. and I did all three and nine, and that's how I started becoming a manager and so all of a sudden I had these, all these actresses and actors that had not been really in front of the camera for 10 to 15, 20 years, all calling <laughs> me now, you know, can, can you, can you restart me? Right. You know, that type thing. Um, but, but just by like being a lawyer, I mean, I, we could have, I could have represented a lot more people, but I just, I, you know, I only really represented people that I cared about, wanted to see do well. Um, had made some really bad mistakes on, on partnering with some managers. But, you know, again, it, it really did teach me the business through the eyes of an actor. 
And, and, and I think now uh, going through being a producer and now a studio exec, those experiences of what an actor goes through gives me a great perspective on who my customer is, who, who I need to make happy. I mean, again, obviously it's the studio and then the producer, but at the end of the day, it's the actors that are working 20 hours a day on a, on a, on a set somewhere. And I want to make sure that their experiences um, is fulfilling and meaningful as well. Yeah. Because, you know, certainly it's the same in theater. I've done roles that were paid me three, four or $500 a week, not very much in the grand scheme of things, but they were great roles or they mm -hmm. were great directors or the experience itself coupled with that small paycheck made it a good experience. And then I've yeah. gotten $2,000 a week and, and had good times and bad times. So it, it, it's, it's everywhere in between the money is just a, uh, it can kind of get you by when things are horrible, but it's not the end all be all. And I think that that's what you're alluding to, that the experience, the artistry, the creativity that we can experience can often overcome those kind of financial concerns. Now, you also have had a couple of moments in front of the camera. So you, 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 have, you have had a little bit. One, one was uh, you actually got to play a defense attorney. So you, a bit of typecasting. Did, did, I can't did believe you, you pulled that up. Uh, I mean, that, oh, that oh, was, yeah. you, well, I dug deep. deep dive. I think 15 <laughs> people saw that and, and, and only, only two should have. Uh, but no, yeah, I, that was an accident. But, but, go but, ahead. but yeah, the, the reason why I bring that up, that experience, I would assume, at least gave you then a bird's eye view of what it's like for us actors, even even those those small little bit parts. Yeah, I'll tell you what was more kind of meaningful to me than that was I was um, working with a young lady who had gone to the University of North Carolina, which has had a pretty successful output of successful actors. Um, so the person I was working with invited the theater teacher from North Carolina to New York on a Saturday to do a workshop. And I went to this thing thinking that I was going to be there for an hour. Um, and I sat there for six hours and just watched him work with actors through a scene. And that was, that for me was, you know, I'll never forget it. One scene was a couple fighting, right? And so most of the, the, the acting pairs had, had gone to the traditional yelling and screaming route, you know, because it was a fight. And he took them through and he said, why don't y'all try it now and do all the lines sarcastically? Like, in other words, no anger, you're just trying to get each under each other's skin. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, those type of directions, I mean, you know, you always hear on set or, or actors talk about the choices they make for me to be able to watch that process. You know, I, don't, and I, I never want to be an actor. You know that you watched me. Um, but to see that work that real actors uh, and by real actors, I'm talking about people who want to create a career, not celebrity. You know, there's two types of people. There's people who want to become actors and there's people who want to be celebrities. And but the people that really put the work into becoming an actor that day really opened the, the door on, you know, the, the people that really become prepared and and put the time in creating characters and thinking about what would this character do in this situation and things like that. And then watching this master of the craft help them work through that. That was really kind of, uh, you know, my I always had respect for actors because, you know, standing on stage and, and, and burying your soul like that. 
but that was really probably the most significant acting experience. And I was just an observer. When I started working in Hollywood, it was the height of the Duck Dynasty. So this accent played, right? So I, I ended up getting, uh, becoming friends with some very, very interesting and famous people. And, um, and, and some of those people were very high end agents. And a lot of times when they couldn't take somebody, they would send them to me just so they could check the box and say, look, we tried. Um, but I would take the time to meet with these people and, and then looking at their tapes. Right. I mean, because at that point, um, self tapes were just coming on the market. Um, I, when I did take a, a client, I would be the one that would re edit their reel for them because I, at that point knew what casting directors and things were looking for, but you could tell, you know, I mean, you know, some actors, they might have a reel of 15 self tapes and it'd be the same character, if you want to call it that, 15 different times. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then there were some people that you, you thought they were you were looking at 15 different people. So it was, again, mad respect for the profession. Yeah, because you have certainly met your fair share you brought up one of them the uh randy runkle the the senior yeah. vice president at showtime and you've also gotten in with john voigt actor yeah. uh the documentary filmmaker morgan spurlock as well so you've yeah. you, you've kind of had a wide ranging of people that you've met through your time that have kind of become mentors and and so what exactly is the common thread amongst the these people you know the advice the guidance that they have given you you know, it's funny, there is not a common thread. I mean, this industry, I always say, is like the seventh grade cafeteria politics. And what I mean by that is, is the purpose is to get to the cool kids table. And if you look at the cool kids table, you've got the football player, you've got the cheerleader, you've got the nerd that does everybody's uh, homework for them. You know, you, you have all of these different archetypes that got to the cool kids table, right? And they, and, and, and like, for instance, I mean, you know, John Voight, Academy Award winner from the 70s. I mean, uh, Morgan Spurlock, who says that he's a hillbilly and I'm the redneck. We, we, we talk a lot. Um, I mean, he just started shooting stuff and then ended up making, you know, ate McDonald's for 30 days and became a household name. And then, you know, the lesser known people, the Randy Runkles of the world and, and all of those. I, I think the biggest thing was there's a commonality but amongst lawyers politicians and a lot of people in show business and there and that is there's a lot of people that think they know everything and so and they want to let you know they know everything and mm -hmm. i became the person that i'm just interested in listening and so i would just ask a lot of questions and then then sit there and let them tell me what's the worst pitch you've ever seen what's the best pitch you've ever seen what's the role you took that you regret right um those type things, you know, and it's just a matter of people that are lifetime learners who are willing to both share and listen. And I think I try, I actually look for lifetime learners and I think lifetime learners kind of G-Hall with me. Well, because that's really what you've had to do. You were thrown into a presidential campaign without really knowing much. You were thrown into talent management without really knowing much. And so you've had to learn as you do things. Uh, for for a lot yes. of your career as as you've transitioned from one to the next. And so the story that got you into film production 
it's it really is one of those examples of of the challenges that can lead to opportunities and and, and that old adage of kind of being in the right place at the right time that was absolutely that yeah. yes yeah because i knew i wanted to get into producing because i i wanted to see the whole process and this is this goes for independent film not for um big budget movies but for independent films i, I found that the same archetype of people who give large sums of money to presidential campaigns pretty much line up to people who might invest into, into an independent film hmm. because you know they they want to be they want to get a picture with somebody famous. They want to be invited to important parties. They, um, but but I offered them a chance to uh, get their name in lights, and you know, in a one in a million chance, they'll get their money back, um, which is unlike giving to politicians, which means you'll never get your money back. You might get some yeah, favors, though. Yeah, exactly, and yeah. that's there are some morals to the story that I'm going to tell you. <laughs> It was a Wednesday or a Thursday, and one of those mistake partners that I had along the way that um, just you know just didn't work out uh, called me. They he knew a producer. Uh, they were working on a film. The entire budget was a half a million bucks, and uh, everybody, all the leads, um, Blad Danner. Real Perlman, Sam Elliott, all of them were pay or play on mon the next Monday. So they had like 72 hours to replace the budget. And I, they sent me the script. And 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 I, this was the only analysis that I gave at the time because the, I was still early in my career. It, it, here's a half a million dollar budget. The average age of the cast is mid to late 60s and even involved perhaps moving into a, an assisted living home. I mean, we're, we're, we're not talking about, you know, the, uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe here. And so but it was extremely well written. It was um, it was a great story. And there was only one character in it that I knew had to be played perfectly or the whole movie would be weird. But I would. But that was a chance I was willing to give. So I called this lady in Texas and she wired a half a million dollars in 12 hours, which saved the movie. I mean, without a contract or anything, which apparently kind of gave me street cred in, in, in Hollywood, because that's just something that doesn't happen. Right. Yeah. Wow. And so that movie uh, actually became uh, I've, I've got the poster over here. Um, I'll see you in my dreams. And the next thing we know, it's been invited to premiere at Sundance. So I went to Sundance and we saw it premiere and, and I got to get drunk with um, Sam Elliott at, at, at our premiere party. And both of us were laughing at people who were so, you know, that all these people at Sundance wanted to get in these parties that were so exclusive that nobody was actually there. Um, but it was a, it was a neat experience. Morgan was there Spurlock who, who who kind of walked me through the process of what the hell was going on at, at Sundance Film Festival, other than, you know, a lot of people trying to get the pictures for celebrities. And that thing got bought. I think it made 17 million at the box office worldwide. And um, Blood Danner was being talked about as an Academy Award. So out of the gate, I was a critically acclaimed and financially successful producer. And oh, by the way, um, 
Clyde Danner and 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 all of them get a lot of credit, but the the character that could have made this whole thing weird was played by Martin Starr of Freaks and Geeks. Hmm. And he was the one that I give him all the credit in the world for making it a sweet movie and not a weird movie. So I, I always give a shout out to Martin Starr, who was a little bit further down on the call sheet, but he he uh, he did a great job. So the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, is that you know, the Hollywood, as, as I'm sure the theater business, it, it's a very small universe, right? The, the number of people in it are very small, particularly the number of people that actually are active in it, right? Mm-hmm. And so here I had pulled this rabbit out of my hat. And um, uh, one of the producers who I had say, literally saved this amount of money, uh, she, I found out later, um, had tried to circumvent me on her next project to the investor that I'd given her to, not knowing that I'd spent years building this relationship, right? And then later that investor, not knowing that I had read a thousand and five scripts to give her a good movie, she was like, oh, I can do this. And she went out and apparently I heard that uh, it, it, she almost got herself banned from her own set. So, I mean, kids, you won't go anywhere because that stuff you'll find out about it and you'll burn bridges uh, really quickly. So, I mean, it was a great, it was a great experience. And then, you know, I'm, when people go and do those type of things that there's no skin off my teeth, it's just, you know, it's just check off two people that if they need help again, they're not coming to me, even though that producer had tried to call me twice more to, to save another project. I was like, maybe you should start getting your money in escrow before you, you know, hire talent. I, I don't know, maybe, I don't know. Well, you have certainly gotten your feet wet with your first production company, Londonderry, and it started with high hopes of what it could accomplish. You were going in many different directions or wanted to with that, yet it only lasted about three years or so. Why do you think that that company didn't last longer? It was trying to do too much at once. So I had a great experience um, being a manager and I had now um, not only that movie, but I had worked on a movie um, where I just fixed it. It was ready to be sold. It was a documentary about an expedition to find uh, Noah's Ark. Spoiler alert, they didn't find it, but they were trying to find a buyer. And um, I, I helped them with some tweaks to make it, if it wasn't selling as is, and my friend Gary Sinise was the one that had uh, narrated it. I think I, all I did was suggest some tweaks um and and now you can see it on on uh, amazon so i think they they get they made me an executive producer i got a little fee they they misspelled my name on the box which i love <laughs> to have i've got to get a poster because it's completely wrong so i you know so i found that i enjoyed kind of matching money to projects and here i, I was on the east coast the other side was on the west coast and we had some internal problems but again I like to focus on what I'm doing. And if I could, I was so focused on the production side that I couldn't keep my eye on the management side. And so that really where is where we started kind of dragging. That was a, a business that I'd raised money for. I owed a duty to investors and things. And it just, it just didn't work um, because I had underestimated how much money I needed to do all of that. And, and two, while I do have ADD and do 
think about 12 things at once. In business, I do kind of like focusing on on making something successful. I think my our our attentions were just um too diverse and too in too many different directions. So what was the final straw that finally made you come to the realization, okay, this just needs to be put to rest? Really the numbers. I mean, I, I you know, I had made commitments to investors and and um the the book of business that was promised that would be coming with us uh never came came to fruition and uh, you know after after a while you know you know it's just um there's only so much money i'm going to do to float something although i will tell you i think we represented i didn't know this until like a year and a half later which just hurts i think we represented winston duke for like two days and then he fired us and then and then got black panther so as you said, it's a small little universe within right, the Hollywood. Right. So, you know, one person knows someone who didn't work with that person who went to this other person. Yeah. And I still keep up with him. So, you know, I never look at experiences as failures, but but that that, that was a costly uh, experience, to say the least. But it was we I shut that down officially end of 2017, early 18 and realized that I needed to take a break because that was that, that, that experience almost killed me. I mean, we just had way too much going on and it was all on my shoulders to get it done. Yeah. So with your latest venture, Kane Studio, what sets it apart from London Dairy and what are you doing differently to make this one succeed? I'm pretty good at looking at trends and look and, and seeing trends. And so I, w- I already knew by 2017 that the the streaming universe was going to be a lot bigger than amazon and netflix but what a studio looks like has it changed um there's some technologies that have changed obviously john favreau's um virtual screen that they use with mandalorian there's some new tools on the block but you know in, in la you have these hundred-year-old companies that anytime you want to make a change, sometimes you actually have to do asbestos abatement, Um, (laughs) you know, and I was like, you know, could I reimagine the studio system to create a, an ecosystem where it's almost like a resort for movie making now, now this was before COVID. So this, this was a crazy idea. I mean, I, because I looked at, you know, why were they building studios on the most expensive dirt in America in LA and New York and Atlanta? I mean, uh, there was a, there's an investment company that just invested $350 million into a new studio to be built on five acres in LA. Hmm. I mean, so figure that out. The commute home, like from Atlanta or New York, uh, safety concerns, um, and then and then your housing can be your most variable cost on a movie. So I said, could I create a concept where you have a full blown production studio, so you could take a script all the way distribution, uh, put it on enough acreage that there's green space, there's there's amenities, there's there's things to do other than you know for the people to to enjoy when they're not in their trailer or on set, like I talked about, um, and then give them 100% privacy, um, uh, which is hard to do in LA, New York, or Atlanta. And so that was really what Kane Studio started out as on the back of a napkin. 
the other thing was, is that I wanted to build it in Southwest Georgia. And people were like, where the heck is that? For two reasons, I could get cheap land, but it's also one of the poorest uh, regions in the country. It's actually, I think the third poorest congressional district in the country. Hmm. And Georgia had, had created this amazing program called the Georgia Film Academy. So that if you're an electrician or do sheetrock or a carpenter, um, you could go through the Georgia Film Academy and get your union card and work as crew. And as you know, I mean, the difference between making 15 bucks an hour and, and working on two movies in a year is a huge amount of money, right? So I was like, I could do this. It makes sense financially for the company. And then we could crank out about 3,000 people a year with starting salaries of about $90,000 a year, which down here, $90,000 a year is like making 300 in New York. But like every area of entertainment, COVID-19 put a halt to his production development aspirations, just as he was in talks with a major studio to become his anchor tenant at Kane Studios. But as the pandemic slowed down and entertainment slowly began coming back, production facilities and sound stages were hard to come by as demand increased for more and more new content, both from the studios themselves as well as movie theaters, hoping to bring you and me back to the cinema. But the thing that really changed everything for me was that during COVID, Tyler Perry, of all people, was the one person that enabled people to keep going in production because his because his his studio is an old fort, right? right. So it already had yeah. housing on it. It was completely um, secure, and he created what has now been dubbed a COVID bubble, so that everybody was, that worked on that set lived on that set until they finished the project. And then Walking Dead took up on that. So these the cast was living in the sets, right? And so all of a sudden, uh, people were still producing. Well, at the same time, the numbers counters were realizing that it costs a lot less money to if you have people that are already there filming as opposed to logistically getting a 1,000 people in the morning to one place. And so my concept of having a creative ecosystem pre-COVID was pretty out there. And now it is, it, it seems to be because I have one of the um, pre premier studio designers in the world working with me, that that seems to be where everybody's going now. Yeah. So once again, uh, something unbeknownst to you, COVID came along at, at, a, at a time when it actually helped your business idea become more of a reality and, and actually seem more doable not only doable, but necessary. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, thanks to Tyler Perry and some other people that were, that were already in the business and created this concept, you know, um, between that and me, me convincing Delta airlines to give me a weekly flight from LAX to Albany, Georgia of all places. Uh, so I basically have a private airport for my studio. Those two things uh, kind of help move it along. No matter whether you are a producer like Patrick, an actor and singer like myself, or any other type of creative in this business, it's important that we take full advantage of the skills and resources we have at hand to map out the best career path possible. 
In fact, the second annual presentation of Bettering Ourselves, Bettering Our Careers will be coming up in a month-long series of episodes featuring directors, coaches, and writers who will show us how we too can carve unique and varying paths for ourselves as artists. Be sure to subscribe to the monthly Win Me newsletter for more information about this impactful series. Well, there is certainly one element of society that is having a greater and greater impact on our careers, and that is something that Patrick knows intimately well, politics. It has even affected my in-person auditions at times, especially during the Trump years, when actors waiting in line to go into the audition room would get on some rant about the latest thing Trump had done. I was often asking my fellow actors to please be considerate and save this one sacred space as a Trump-free zone. But I'll admit, it can be hard not to let our political desires and leanings influence our daily lives and careers. So, with Patrick and myself, both from the South, and his years in the legal and political realms, I was curious how these both affected his showbiz aspirations. I think the timing of when I showed up and started doing this was, you know, when I'm at the height of Duck Dynasty. And so I had executives literally pull me aside and say, explain Duck Dynasty and Walmart to me. Right. (laughs) And then as I started getting to know more and more people and realizing and people realizing that I was serious about doing this and not one of these people that could have a conversation, you know, there's a lot of people that you can't have a conversation with without talking about politics, I, I am truly apolitical. I mean, if anything, I am a cynic about politics. And so I think that negated that. Um, and then the w- with the Southern thing and with what's going on in Georgia, this is a people business. You know, I, I celebrate LA successes, New York successes, and Georgia successes because it just means that there are more people in it. A good example is a couple of years ago, as you know, Georgia passed what is known as the heartbeat bill. It was a it was a, an abortion bill that made it illegal after a certain point. And um, you had a pretty big contingent of Hollywood actors and, and even uh, executives say, we're going to boycott Georgia because of this. And I wrote a op ed piece for The Hollywood Reporter that said, look, you can believe what you want to believe, and you can actually believe what you want to believe in the state of Georgia. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater by eliminating 50, 60,000 new jobs who are your fellow union members, you know, who are now working in Georgia in our industry over a political issue that's probably good because we have a way in this country to litigate literally political issues. But I think that there's a lot of people that have taken up that mantle of if you want to change things, especially in an industry that has gotten so large in Georgia, do it by by bringing more people here or educating more people, but don't don't completely kill an industry mm-hmm. of your fellow artists right to to make a to make a a political point we saw a little bit of that when they did the um the voting rights bill because i mean even even stacy abrams and others were saying you know 
boycotting Georgia is not a way to protest. It's not effective a way to effectuate change, you know, and it's not really persuasive. It really, you know, um, and all you're really doing is hurting your fellow union members. And so, you know, if anything that I got from politics is, you know, is to help people say, look, you know, everybody goes to boycott or this or that or the other. I'm like, here's, here's, here's some other ways that you can be a lot more influential and effective than every time you see something you don't like tweeting a hashtag. There is such a reflexive nature to, to people now. And, and, uh, you know, being in theater in New York, you know, a very liberal place, then everyone's kind of in the same mindset, the same bubble. So anything that comes in that bubble that is just how dare you say such a thing, then, then everyone just kind of regroups and, you know, pushes that out. And, and it's, and to me, it's like, yes, we're, we're, there are going to be differences, but at the same time, there needs to be conversation. And the only way differences change is to have conversation. If all you do is continually ostracize what you don't like, well, then that bubble that other bubble is just going to continue to grow of people that are dissatisfied and then and then it's not solving anything well that that's actually where i think the importance of what we do is and that is i think it's going to take another generation to relearn how to debate each other because Mm -hmm. we have gotten to the point where if you say i am a blank you are automatically going to lose half your audience so the people that agree with you are going to listen to you and the people that don't agree you won't listen to you conversely when it comes to the the last remaining bastion we have of making people think about things is movies and theater because for some reason when we sit in that seat after we bought a ticket and the curtain either goes up or out depending on what venue you're in you've actually got an open mind for a little bit and I'm really not talking about these films that they try to shove something down your throat, right? They, yeah, where it's almost I, propaganda. Right. I don't like movies that are just written to the point where it's absurd. It's like a Michael Moore documentary, but as a narrative, right? Or mm-hmm. I don't know, Dinesh D'Souza on the other side, right? I, but if you tell real life stories and show people how other people live, the old saying of li- of being able to walk in their shoes for a mile. That's what we do. And, and so I, I think the importance of bringing a full-fledged production studio to Georgia, because up until this point, all we have is sound stages, is it just gives us another place where stories can be written from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not conservative. That's not liberal. That is just perspective. It's a different viewpoint. And so, you know, a a screenwriter that has grown up and lived in L.A. all of her life or in New York all of her or his life is going to write much different stories than a screenwriter that grew up in in the South. And 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 in light of the, the need for more and more content and more interesting things and interesting things to look at, I think that's the way to do it is spread it around. Yeah, because I think as you were alluding to movies and theater, these are ways the, to start a conversation. I, I, I personally don't think it's the place of movies or theaters to come up with answers. I think no. that's, that, that's what the conversations are there for, to see like, all right, this may be one person, but this one person's life story went this way. 
it, it's, it's one way to look at this particular issue or lifestyle or whatever it may be. It's another way of looking at, at how we live and how we can live together rather than, rather than present some kind of answer like this is the way it has to be. And as you were saying, those kind of movies annoy me as well. I'll give you two examples of the best people that, that have ever lived to do it right. And that is Jesus and Gene Roddenberry. Uh, you know, <laughs> Jesus told parables um, that we, whether you're religious or not, are still told today. Good Samaritan being one of them. You don't, you, you, you could have never darkened the door and you know what the Good Samaritan means. That's an impactful story. And then, of course, when Gene Roddenberry came along in the 60s, they said, you know, you can't make a TV show about race, gender, uh, politics, any of these hot busted issues. So all I did was put it on a spaceship and dealt with race and gender and, and, and hot button issues. Right. So, I mean, again, you don't have to come in and say this movie is uh, I hate the phrases faith based movies or or, you know, some sort of uh, indicator to tell you what it is. A, a good movie or a good play should just be a player, a good movie, right? Um, I'm going to put my soapbox up in just a second. I promise you I'll pick it up. <laughs> you grew up in the South. I grew up in the South in a time where homosexuality was not just, it, it just wasn't acknowledged, right? Nobody knew right. about, I mean, it, you didn't, nobody talked about you it. just didn't talk your about parents it. Didn't, your, your parents sure as heck didn't tell you about it. Um, you know, um, a lot of people were, were remained closeted for a long time. Then the AIDS virus hit, and then it was the gay disease and all this other stuff. And, and that's all you knew about it. Right. And then the movie Philadelphia came along. Right. And all of a sudden you got to walk a mile in the shoes of someone, um, who was wrong. Right. So it's amazing how humanity works. Right. It, it, so you have a gay guy who has AIDS. But at the end of the day, everybody was on his side because he wasn't, he was wronged by a big firm or, or a bit, you know, the big guys, right? That he was being bullied and nobody, everybody hates the bully, right? And so I, I think that history will show that that is a movie that, that really changed the culture. And, and I can prove it a little bit because over the years you've had, uh, late shows and comedian shows and stuff send people to southern towns um, and, and have have a gay couple and they want to catch rednecks being completely rednecks and they're never able to because southerners are just southerners we we really do love everybody and and so <laughs> that all they have had is hey come on guys come on gals come in and have some sweet tea and peach cobbler right so I mean that's an example of a parable having a very big impact and you're talking about Duck Dynasty before that opened up people who didn't know about that kind of rural living to it's like, oh, well, that's interesting. That's fascinating. It humanizes what was before just other. And then yes. it brings it into more of a conversation. And and that that kind of helped you because then with you kind of having that typical Southern accent, then, then you were kind of putting that same. It's like, oh, well, if Duck Dynasty is interesting, Patrick Millsaps must be interesting, too. Well, if you look at, because I know the Robertsons and I've gone down and had catfish with them. And so if you look at, <laughs> they now have a show on Facebook where Corey and Willie invite people to their house to spend time together. And they've brought in vegetarians to talk about, I mean, you know, you, you, you've got the family of meat eaters, right? And, and, and they talk about vegetarianism. And then, you know, Corey and Willie 
um, have an African-American son they adopted. And so they had an episode uh, where they talked to a black family about raising uh, African-American boys and, 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 you know, cause Corey and Willie had never had to talk to them about officers and, and, and being pulled over and things. And so, I mean, so it gave them a light or a, a platform now to have some very interesting conversations coming from people who sound like me. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, I, I think that's a more interesting conversation than you'll ever have on a set of a, of a show in New York or LA bringing people with different views, almost militant views at times to a small town in Louisiana that has one gate at the airport, not two, one, um, to come and, and really show, you know, the, uh, people having real conversations. That's, that's a, that's a powerful medium and it's conversations we're not having day to day. Well, this has been a great conversation with you, and I greatly appreciate you coming on. And I know that, uh, you know, even though we're we're from the same background, it's still it's still great to hear your perspective and the things that you've learned and kind of the places that you've been almost thrust into un- unknowingly and have yeah. uh, and have learned from them. So, thank you for your uh, your advice and your wisdom. All right, well, good to talk to you again. <laughs> if you want me to run lines with you again after twenty right. years. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. You'll be my first go-to reader for sure. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I believe that. My conversation with Patrick is such a good reminder to keep pushing ourselves and going for each new opportunity with a very deliberate persistence. Now, don't forget, the conversation continues with the final five questions, and that extra episode will be on YouTube or in the members-only feed of the podcast. You can join Why I'll Never Make It on Supercast for as little as $5 a month. Now, with this being a one-person operation, your financial support goes a long way to help sustain the production and editing, as well as provide listeners like you with as many engaging guests and resources as possible. Please go to whyillnevermakeit.com and click the support button. Well, I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Publicity provided by Imagine PR Group. Incidental music featured in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Why I'll Never Make It is a part of the Helium Radio Network and a member of the Broadway Makers Alliance. Join me next time as we talk more about Why I'll Never Make It. <laughs>